Everybody knows that community works, right? It works. That enhances our quality of life, whether we're Christian or not. Communities of people help one another in financial need by helping them find a job. You help people that you know and love find shelter when they're in a time of need. Uh, and during tough times, you encourage the members of your community to uh, uh, keep persevering, and you provide a collective sense of identity for one another. Community is key to our happiness, and science and medicine proves it. Time and time again, that we're social creatures and that failure to engage with others results in depression and a host of other maladies. That, in fact, social isolation drastically even impacts our autoimmune system. It makes us sick when we're isolated from people who love and care for us. So even those outside the church, whether we're talking about a community found on a battlefield, a sports team, a college, university, a business, some type of neighborhood or community organization, whatever it might be, that is a common grace given by God to point us towards the author and perfecter of community, our Savior. And from time to time, we're going to hit the pause button on our normal teaching plan on Sunday nights and discuss one-off issues of importance. So uh, one-off issues of importance uh, are, are things like mental health. And we spent several weeks a while ago on a series focused on just that. And we'll spend some time every now and again just doing a one-off talk on mental health. And certainly, uh, uh, it's a, an important issue in our day and uh, situation. Because the lack of authentic community as a country is killing us. The very old become isolated and they fall into mental illness. The very young lack healthy adult interaction and face insurmountable obstacles to their academic and social path because they can't cope with loss. They can't cope with frustration and failure because God designed adults to help kids learn how to navigate through life. And when there's silence and barely any communication, certainly mental illness will result. And as we've said in our previous series, again on mental health, college campuses are facing a crisis of pandemic proportions. Suicide and depression are up 50% in the last decade. In fact, one uh, higher up OSU employee told me that they no longer re report uh, campus suicides through normal communication venues because there's so many. They don't want to strike fear in the hearts of students. God designed community for our good. It's the best preventative medicine, and it's the best treatment for active mental decline. If it were a pill, everybody would be on it. Now, we have to be honest. We all know we need to be around God's people, don't we? We all know that. We hear these calls to engage with one another, and they can become rather annoying. Here's another pastor telling me I need to go to church and all that stuff, right? That's what some of us are thinking right now. Oh, yeah, community. And it's kind of like this guy's call to community here. You love me, we're a happy family with a great big hug and a kiss from me to you. Won't you say you love me too? Whether it's rainy or sunny, you're all very special to me. Thank you very much. How many of you know that song? How many of you grew up with that? That ages me quite a bit. Okay, my Anna loved Barney. 
okay? And that was back before Netflix and all that stuff. You couldn't, parents, you couldn't just watch any and every cartoon. You had a handful of videos, hand-me-downs that were played over and over and over. And see, children love this strange purple beast whose origin no one really knows, but adults <laughs> loathe them. I've never been tempted to murder, but I was tempted many times to murder Barney. Everything he said was true, you know, about commute, family, all that stuff. But when you hear it over and over and over, there were times I would come home from work and say, Becky, I just can't handle it. You got to turn that off. And I think that's how many of us can interact with the concept of community in the church. We hear it so much that we become numb to the idea. And we can no longer listen and hear that God has a tremendous blessing in store for those who authentically pursue community. We hear this oftentimes as a good message gone old. It's too much work. It's too tough to adjust our lifestyle to these big demands. We want to put on our headphones, bring up that binge show, or numb out on social media. Less work, immediate relief, and no risky interactions with people that might make us feel uncomfortable, might hurt us, or even worse, might make us feel insecure. This type of escapism is what's killing us, literally, as a country and as a church. It steals one of our greatest gifts, and that's community. But there's so much more to community. It's not only necessary and commanded, it's our pleasure to be a part of God's church. It's the best antidepressant because it was manufactured within the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit love one another, and out of that, life pours out onto us as we engage with the church. We're told how great it is in Psalm chapter 133, verse 1. It'll be on the screen if you want to turn there. You can as well. Psalm 133, verse 1. It says, how good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. So when God's people live together, there's pleasure. When God says that something is going to be pleasurable, it's going to be pleasurable indeed, right? Do we typically associate community in the church with joy? I think the answer for many of us is no. Maybe you can relate to the person in a moment of honesty who said to me, it was Phil Krause. No, it wasn't Phil who said this. I'm just kidding. Uh, but he said, I really, do want more, I really do not want more community than we already have at this church because if we had more community, people would expect too much from me. Some of you have been hurt in the church, and it's the last thing you want. Community is costly, isn't it? And undealt with wounds from the past make it feel even more costly. You're expected to be present when we gather on Sunday night and at home groups and real community because we have to be together to have community, right? That's step number one. We actually have to be together. Real community requires the giving of our resources. It means giving up, it means giving up our time to one another, serving one another when life gets difficult, rolling up our sleeves and helping with the real stuff of life making meals, mowing lawns, listening to prayer requests, having fun together, serving missionally together, asking thoughtful questions, patience with our slow spiritual growth and everybody else's, and not getting our way. But we have to start this discussion on Christian community from a place of honesty. 
and say that community is costly. It requires us to reprioritize everything in our lives. When we speak of community in the church, we start from a different place than the world does. When the world starts with uh, a conversation on community, they start from a reciprocal relationship, a zero-sum game where you scratch my back and I scratch yours. For example, the relationship I have with other parents at my kid's school. We're all there at meetings for the same reason. It's not for the hard chairs and the cheap, nasty coffee. Okay, it, we're there because we all have a, we all share the common denominator, denominator of wanting our kids to succeed socially and academically. Okay, so we're together for a specific purpose. When that purpose is over, probably not going to hang out very much. Or like uh, somebody helps me move, and I feel like, well, now I need to help them on their moving day. But our relationship with one another in the church is quite different. We're first in community with other believers because God commands us to be united with one another. It's part of our worship. It's what we celebrate during communion, right? This supernatural, miraculous relationship we have with one another in Jesus' name because of his crucifixion. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10, Paul's writing to the church at Corinth, and he says this, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another with what you say, and then that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. Now, I want you to hear this, okay? That all of you agree with one another in what you say, and there be no divisions among you. And he commands this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ for extra emphasis. So that means that it's not okay for you to guess how you think I feel about you, okay? And it's not okay for me to guess what you feel about me based on what I see that's not objectively true. Let me share an example, okay? Let me share an example, and we need to zero in on this. I come into a meeting, and I have a scowl on my face. Now, does Stephen, Stephen thinks that I'm angry. He says, Chris is angry because he has a scowl on his face. Is that objectively true or subjectively true? Subjectively true. According to this verse, what do I need to do? Or what does he need to do, rather? That all of you agree with one another in what you say, that we're committed to truth. He needs to ask me, Chris, are you angry? Otherwise, if he doesn't, and I've dealt with more conflicts and mediated more times than I can count, and this is almost always the issue. If he doesn't, he creates a fictional, and Stephen's not wired like this, so I can pick on him. Uh, he's a very level-headed guy. But if he doesn't, he will create a fictional narrative that Chris is angry with him. He's created a fictional narrative that says it is objectively true that Chris is angry with him. Now, if he would have asked me in that first interaction where I had the scowl on my face at whatever meeting, I might have said, man, no, I, I was nauseous because I did the workout from hell where wolves were chasing me, you know, and, and that's why I had a scowl on my face, uh, you know, but if he doesn't ask me and he creates a fictional narrative, then if there ever is a conflict, he's been reading my body language and my expressions and misinterpreting them now time and time again to where if there is a time that I'm legitimately angry at him, that fictional narrative that's now years old has gasoline thrown on it. 
And it all started because we weren't committed as a community to truth. You seem angry right now. Are you angry with me? You didn't call me two weeks ago. And you said we were going to get together and you didn't call. You must not like me. You must not like me because we were supposed to get together, John. We were supposed to get together two weeks ago and you just totally forgot. You don't care about me. Objectively true or subjectively true? Subjectively true. All right? Maybe John had a death in the family. Maybe John just needs a little grace because he forgot. So what do I owe John according to this verse? John, did you forget about me, man? We were supposed to get together two weeks ago. You forgot. Well, why did you forget, man? What came up? I was kind of worried about you. See, there we go. That's part of the word tells us to assume the best. He forgot the kids. He's human. Now, had I, had I let that go, and John doesn't like me, and then I see him at church, and I'm looking at him because I'm reading his body language because I think he doesn't like me, and he doesn't care about me, and I'm reading his body language, and he said hi to five other people in church, but he didn't say hi to me. He doesn't like me. Objectively true, subjectively true. Subjectively true. Five other things happen two years from now. He actually says something hurtful because we're human and we're going to hurt one another. And I throw gasoline on the fictional narrative. And he's wondering why in the heck I'm so mad at him. Right? There be no divisions among you. Folks, that is a radical commitment to dealing with conflict. That means if you have not been hurt by others in the body of Christ and sought restitution and reconciliation, you've not been committed to community. If you haven't been bruised, your nose hasn't been bloodied by other Christians, and you haven't actively tried to deal with it by speaking with them face to face, then you haven't tasted of real community because there's a cost involved. And great intimacy comes with a great cost. I'm gonna hurt you, you're gonna hurt me. We are commanded not to have divisions among us. So you know what that means? We're capable of carrying it out. And the Holy Spirit will bring peace and grace and reconciliation if we're committed to the process of talking through things in a healthy and God-honoring way. We live in a world that says your, narr- your, your story is your story, and if it feels true to you, then it is true. That is a lie. That's a lie. We want to get subjective truth out into the realm of objectivity, and the Holy Spirit's great at doing that. He wants to shine his light of truth into our areas of conflict. And then in Hebrews 10, 24, it says, and let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. Uh, Whenever I read this, let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, I think of the Buckeyes. I happen to be walking around waiting for a meeting one day and I stumbled on a football practice. And they were doing this super hardcore conditioning, but you know what I thought? I thought there was a party going on. I did, I mean, they were all like, woo, yeah, five more, five more. I mean, they are going crazy, patting each other on the back. I mean, it was like, I wanted to get in there and do the 10 minute wolf chasing me workout with them. You know, it was just, it was so intense. They were spurring one another on. And when we're committed to unity, we spur one another on. I see gifts in you. I see that there's an evangelist in you just waiting to come out. 
And you see that there's a shepherding gift in me that's just waiting to love on other people and lead them closer to Jesus. And we spur one another on. You know how it is. That person who encourages you and they see something in you that you don't see and the Holy Spirit supernaturally ignites something in your soul because of their words, that's what we're talking about. You know, when I see the example of the Krauss family and all they've done was start and save families and laying their life down for folks, man, their example spurs me on. It spurs me on. So many of you spur me on. And it says, all the more as you see the day approaching. So there is this mentality we have that all that matters is like Paul said, I'm gonna press on towards what is ahead and I'm gonna forget what is behind. I'm gonna forget what is behind, whatever it might be, because when I'm running a race, the only thing I'm thinking about is the finish line. Once, many, 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 many years ago, I ran a marathon. I'd never run a race before. It was one and done. Never even done a 5K. Trained for six months. My body was completely destroyed. But I ran the marathon. And all I could think of was finishing. I wasn't thinking, I want to go back and run mile six better. I knew I had just enough in the tank, maybe, to finish. And I did. But that was my focus. And that's what we're called to focus on as believers. That day when we see Jesus face to face and he brings his renewed city that's the way it was supposed to be all along to earth, the new Eden. That is our focus. That's what we live for. Okay, we don't live for stuff. We, don't, we look at stuff and we say, is this gonna help me in my race? We look at things that can tangle us up, whether it be entertainment or whatever. Is this going to help me in the race? Is this food I'm about to eat or this thing I'm about to drink or wherever it might be, is this going to help me win the race when I see Christ face to face? And that also is a key component to unity. When we're all thinking about seeing him, we're thinking about each other. We're not thinking about ourselves. We're outward focused when we think about that day approaching. And notice here that the admonition as a practical application in Hebrews is to not neglect the regular, regularly meeting together. So in other words, don't get out of the habit. I don't think this is some big dark thing here. I just think it's, you can get out of the habit of regularly meeting together with the saints. We got a lot of college students who are gone this week for spring break. So yes, I'm not giving this message. I'm not saying that because there's a bunch of people gone, FYI. Um, uh, we need to pray for our Young Life leaders, by the way, too. They're doing a Young Life leaders retreat this week, so make sure and pray for them. Um, and division, as we've read here, is not an option. Paul places extra emphasis again here by saying, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, agree with one another and let there be no divisions among you. But some of you might be thinking, hold on, Chris, you started this message <clears throat> by saying that community was a joy, but now you're saying it's a command. Hold on, and some of us separate out the commands of God from the joy of the Lord. When we follow his commands, that's where joy is found. He wants us to experience pleasure, and that happens when we pursue him and in his call to, to radical community. Again, in Psalm 133.1, David says, How good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in community. Psalm 33 was penned by David when he was king of uh, just about every Jew on the planet. And God's people have always struggled to live in unity and community. 
We know, for example, that Cain killed Abel in Genesis chapter 4, that Lot quarreled with Abraham in Genesis 13, that Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery in Genesis 45, that Jesus... Jesus' disciples often quarreled with one another on who would be the greatest in the kingdom of God. And even Paul and Barnabas argued over John, John Mark and eventually parted ways. God's people before Christ, as recorded in the Old Testament, had so much in common. They had the ancestry of Abraham. They spoke a common language, worshiped the same God. They were children of the same covenant. They shared the same land. They were governed by the same holy law. And yet there was still plenty of division. Christ followers today have experienced the same spiritual growth. We worship the same God. We declare the same gospel. We read from the same scriptures, and we're headed for the same holy city, but yet there's still a heck of a lot of division in there. There's more denominations than we can count. There are dozens of examples of disunity in the Bible, and most of us can recount times where we've witnessed divisions in the church The enemy hates for us to find pleasure in the Lord. And pleasure uh, uh, pleasure is found at least in part, in large part, to pursuing community. And that's why the enemy attacks it relentlessly. Why? So why attack community? Why would he do that? Again, because that's where joy is found. And what he does is he isolates and he deceives You know, most of us, our discouragement, our whatever struggles we're finding, I guarantee you, if I were to interview all of you, 90%, it'd be you're not in in enough community or you're not in authentic community, and you're believing lies that keep you from pursuing others because you think you don't measure up, you think other people don't really care about you, whatever it might be, but you're believing lies from the enemy that isolate you, and you'll never get spiritually well with that mentality. The enemy does not want us to experience joy. So let's continue reading what God, through David, has to say about our community with one another. So in Psalm 133, again, David penned this. I want to highlight just two practical things that the joy of community accomplishes uh, in our lives. First is it empowers us. Psalm 133, verse 2 says, it is like precious oil poured on the head, running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down the collar of his robe. So it, again, at the beginning of verse 2, is referring to what? Yeah, right, God's people living in unity. So God's people living in community is like what? Precious oil poured down on the head, running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down on the collar of his robe. In Scripture, oil is a symbol of the Holy Spirit. In Isaiah 61, 1 through 4, it foreshadows the mission of Christ that Jesus himself proclaims in Luke chapter 4, verse 17. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he, that's God, has anointed me, that's Jesus, to proclaim good news. So this anointing of the Holy Spirit, symbolized through oil, was given to priests, prophets, and kings, all of whom needed the Spirit's help to minister effectively. When the high priest was anointed, the oil would run down his robe onto his collar, onto his breastplate. And the breastplate contained 12 stones that represented the 12 tribes of Israel, so all of God's people. And it was to say, Holy Spirit, come and unify us with your supernatural 
and miraculous unity. And let me give us all just a little tip. If unity was easy, then we wouldn't need a miracle. If unity was easy, we wouldn't need the Holy Spirit. This anointing by the Holy Spirit makes us strong together. In 2 Corinthians, again from Paul in chapter 1, verse 21, he says, Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us, and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. So the strength of unity is impossible to ascertain on our own, and I think the reason many of us struggle is because we try to pursue spiritual disciplines. That's prayer, Bible study, and evangelism, and and serving the poor, all the rest, whatever they might be. We're trying to do it alone, and we're not made for that. We're very fragile as God's people. We're very easily discouraged as God's people, but when we do it together, You know, the admonition in Scripture is to pray with one another. It's to read and sing Scripture over one another. Not that we don't have private disciplines. Of course we do. But community is the key. So what is the strength promised in community? We're strong for what? Well, we're equipped to supernaturally serve one another through the power and anointing of the Holy Spirit so that we might fulfill the Great Commission. That's to preach the message to everybody so that all might love and know Jesus. We also strengthen one another. It says in Galatians 6, 2, that we might carry each other's burdens. It says in Galatians 6, verse 2, carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. So Romans 12 unpacks a little bit what these burdens might be. It encourages us to be devoted to one another through faithfulness and prayer, sharing with the Lord's people who are in need, mourning with those who mourn, rejoicing with those who rejoice. And it takes time. You know, I'm convinced, I can't prove this uh, biblically, but I, I think just practically, I've seen many examples in my life, so take it with a grain of salt. But I think oftentimes, we are motivated to disunity, and we have an explosive conflict, and we end up breaking ties with somebody in the church, or there's massive division, a tear in the church, because there are burdens coming. There's a massive loss that someone's about to experience. There's a stronghold that someone might be walking into. There's a loss in ministry where hearts are broken because of just tough things that have happened. There's a crisis that happens in our culture where we need one another. And if that good friend can be torn away, we've just missed out on an enormous blessing. Someone to help us carry each other's burdens so that we'll fulfill the law of Christ. Well, what is the law of Christ? The law of Christ is the cross. He gave to us what we didn't deserve. That is, he suffered for us even though we didn't deserve it. We did nothing for him, and he did everything for us. That's what's different between the way the world defines unity and the way Christ defines unity. I serve you no matter what. I serve you no matter what, even if I get nothing in return. I invite you to my house over and over and over, even if you never reciprocate. Oftentimes, I think the Lord allows us to be hurt in community because it reveals lies and insecurities that are in our soul. 
Let's use the example of you invite someone to your house and they don't respond. Well, perhaps that's bringing up wounds from your past. Perhaps it's bringing up something that the Holy Spirit wants to heal. Yes, you need to deal with that conflict, but the Lord's also using it in our lives when we get hurt by those who are closest to us. This kind of unity doesn't happen by attending a worship service once a month. It happens through praying regularly for God to grow our hearts for those in our community of believers and by investing our resources into one another, again, especially those who don't deserve it and who can't repay us. I think there is a supernatural change of mind that God can give us as we pray for him to build unity in this church and community. And that's this. I can ask the Lord, Lord, help me to fantasize about ways that I can serve others. You know, my mom raised me like this. She would, there would be times where she'd invite the garbage man in for dinner. You know, she always, always, it was annoying when I was a kid. She was always talking about others' needs and how they were struggling and how we needed to pray for them and so on. But fantasizing about not my own comforts and when am I gonna get my next break? but fantasizing about, hey, I, I wonder how Derek's felt this week. I know he's been pulling doubles at his restaurant. He's going through a lot. I, I should give him a call. You know, in fact, if he's got a little time, I wonder if he'd want to go out for a bite and just chill for a while. When, you know what happens when we start doing that? Joy. Life. We discover what Jesus said, that if you lose your life, you'll find it. But if you try to save it, you'll lose it. We begin fantasizing about how we might serve, dream of ways to make someone else's day special, pray with other believers. It's contagious and it spurs us on towards love and good deeds. We're more likely to be missional with one another if we know that the other is for us and sees the best in us. There's power and joy that Jesus has for us in community for sure. We also reflect this love to one another. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 11, it says, Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is made complete in us. Now catch this again. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is made complete in us. So this means that This supernatural love, without Christ, we can't truly love one another. And without loving one another, we can't truly experience Christ. That, hey, we can't see Christ, but we can have an even greater intimacy with him when we love one another. Isn't that crazy? Loving one another is so powerful. It's not an add-on. Having somebody over for dinner is not an add-on. Man, there's blessing in it when you bring believers into that. Telling somebody else a simple little text that says you're praying for them, it's a big deal. It's a big deal. Deciding that you're going to help somebody in the church who's in need or you're going to spend time with somebody who you think is lonely and isolated or encouraging others, hey, I, I, I want to start this or that ministry with you. I've seen this need in the church. There's life that happens in that. There's a shift that happens in our heart. So others experience the love of Christ through us. It can help 
The person whose parent's dying feel the comfort and consolation in Christ. It can help the mom who's just up to here with not being able to sleep and all the trials of new motherhood continue to press on. It can take the person who's weary in ministry, who's on the front lines, like many of our young life leaders, and encourage them that, hey, you can stay on that campus. You can keep sharing the gospel because God called you to that place. He called you to that place. You didn't get there by accident. He chose you. This is powerful medicine when we commit to regular fellowship and avoid the habit of skipping. It starts by a commitment to say, at its very basic level, it starts by saying, I am never going to stop attending the regular meeting together of the saints, which is locally expressed here through home group and church. I'm just, I'm not going to let insecurity keep me from coming. I'm not going to let conflict keep me. I am, this is my family, warts and all, and I'm coming. And if there's issues, we're going to deal with it because I'm commanded by Christ to deal with it. When this happens, when we start here and then we start pursuing one another to hang out and have fun, when we start pursuing one another to go on mission together and all the rest, when we do that, life happens, healing happens, joy comes, people come to know Christ. We see that in the very beginning of the church that the Lord added to their number because they were devoted to these things. The enemy tries to convince us that YouTube videos are better, though, doesn't he? <laughs> doesn't he? You're about to go to home group, or you're thinking about getting together with another believer for this or that reason, and it's like, I'll just watch an hour of YouTube videos. It sounds ridiculous in context, doesn't it? Like me saying it now, it seems like, how could any of us do that? But we've all done something like that, or some similar. Because in the moment, it seems like it's going to bring immediate relief. And really, all it's doing is... is, is slowly killing us, spiritually and mentally and maybe even physically if we isolate enough. The joy that resides in community certainly brings power and it also brings tremendous refreshment. So the joy of community brings refreshment. It says, in, again, in Psalm 133, verse 3, it is as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion, for there the Lord bestows his blessing, even life forevermore. Again, when David says it, as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion, it is referring to God's people living together in unity. And keep in mind that the Jews of David's day were an agricultural people, and they depended on the, they depended on the rains and the dews to water their crops. So the blessing and the anointing of the Holy Spirit comes upon God's people silently and fully, just like this do. When we're dry, we'll fall apart and wither. But when we get together with other believers, guys, my best times learning from God have, honestly, they've not been here. They've been with other believers who I've known for years who are going through hell, and I see their faithfulness through those tears, and I will never forget it, ever. And I know that something's going to come my way sometime soon, and I'm going to be ready because their faith is strengthening me supernaturally. I just got together with a brother last night that I've known for decades, and he was uh, wrongly convicted of something he didn't do, and he's going to have to do some jail time. He's looking forward to it. He's calling it a mission. For six months, I get to reach people for Christ. 
and his whole family has rallied around him, and dozens and dozens of believers are praying for him. You know what? There's nothing that'll ever be preached here that'll hit me like that. And that happened through crying together, laughing together. I wasn't going to say having babies together, but that's a little weird. You know what I mean, though. Not literally, but we are going through life together. And going through the highs and lows together, we didn't let the other person saying something that maybe hit us wrong destroy the relationship. Man, you let the enemy destroy a relationship with another believer you've known for years. It would be better for you to set fire to your house, drive your cars off of cliffs, and just give your money away to this and that. Just throw it all in penny stocks and watch it all melt away. Because we are throwing away one of God's precious treasures when we let our own pride, insecurity, past wounds, etc., destroy our relationship with one another. The enemy would love for you to go from church to church, from community to community. You continually get ticked off and decide to write everybody off. And after about church number five, guess what? Nobody knows you. You don't know anybody else, and you're fine with that. And your heart has become hard and calloused, and you'll never experience what we're talking about tonight. Because the laughter together, the times of tears where you're seeing that they're struggling and pursuing Christ and they want to spend time with you because they trust you and they know you're going to bring them the comfort of the Holy Spirit, those don't happen overnight and they don't happen without you ticking one another off from time to time. Right? So we do it for Jesus' sake primarily, but we also pursue community for our sake and our brothers' and sisters' sake. The Holy Spirit refreshes us, refreshes us in community. We see this again in the letter to uh, the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 5, 14 through 18. It says, And we urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle and disruptive, encourage the disheartened, help the weak, be patient with everyone, make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Be patient with everyone, even those who are always saying the wrong thing and getting on your nerves. You know, I know I don't do that to any of you and you don't do it to me, but for, for others in the room, that's who we're talking about. We're also to encourage those who are disheartened those who maybe have a weaker faith and are prone to become discouraged more easily than most. We don't give up on our wounded. We don't give up. There might be times we have to practice tough love, but we don't ever give up on them. There's gonna be those who, for a variety of different reasons, they have it a little tougher, and they're gonna need a little extra TLC, and we're to give them that. So joy comes in community as we help one another grow to become more like Jesus. Because this isn't just pat each other on the back and always make people feel cozy, right? This is getting, we have to get in each other's faces here. Uh, encourage those who are idle and disruptive. Hey, you're being disruptive, you're a problem, you're causing disunity, you need to not say that when we're in these particular meetings. Or you need to be a little more gentle when you talk to this person. We're to get in each other's face from time to time. Because you're not a friend if you don't call out the booger in your friend's nose. All right, we have to call out the issues in one another's lives that need to be shaped. And we're told time and time again in Scripture that we are to value a rebuke more than we are words of flattery. 
Because it's in those rebukes that we want to milk it for all it's worth because God wants to teach us. You know how if the rebu- you know how the rebuke, you know how you know if the rebuke has any merit? If it's said and you immediately feel like a visceral response, like, oh man. Like your first, at least for me, my, I know everyone's different. <clears throat> my first reaction is to defend and justify. And when I feel that to say, nope, I'm gonna get whatever I can out of this because I know God wants to teach me. And I try to ask, the, the, the smart thing to do, the wise thing to do is when a rebuke comes your way, ask questions. Oh, well, how did you think I was off-putting there? How did you think my words were hurtful? How could I have said it different? Don't try to justify it. Try to, try to learn as much as you can. I remember seeing this in Kimball, uh, one of our other pastors here years ago. There was this guy who was in full-time vocational ministry, and his first initial, no, I'm just kidding, I'm not going to share anything about this guy, but he, uh, he just let Kimball have it. I mean, called him in a drunken stupor and called him everything but a child of God. I mean, he shared filthy language that Kimball had never heard before. And Kimball has a pretty rough past in his BC days. I knew him for at least a brief period of time when he was, you know, uh, new to the faith. And his language was quite colorful. He knows a, a lot of words that you, you can't share in church. And he said, yet this guy taught him words that he didn't know. I mean, just clearly an attack from the enemy. The, the uh, accusations were completely 110% groundless. I mean, made up, ridiculous. My first reaction is, man, let's go get the sword and let's rewind to the Old Testament and just, God, just... just let me go brave hard on him. You know what I mean? Uh, and Kimball's response was, no, there, there's got to be truth in this. And I want to learn from it. I, I could not believe it. That right there, again, that's years of community. And I got to see him go through a major punch in the nose. And I got to see him honor Christ. That's what, I, that's what you're going to remember. That's what you're going to remember. You remember. You remember friends that you've gone through battle with. Those are the lessons that you remember. need to pick and choose what I'm going to talk about here because I'm a little behind. So the simple application here is don't neglect meeting with other saints. Our way of meeting, again, is not perfect, but it's what we got. Don't neglect it. It would be better for you to come here tired, our home group, tired, cranky, and even sleep through the service. I'd rather you sleep here than sleep at home. You're going to get more out of sleeping here than you are asleep. We're going to have bad days. We're going to have bad months. We're going to have bad years. I'd rather you come angry at somebody else than not come at all. You get in the presence of God's people, and the Holy Spirit will put his thumb on you. If that's what's necessary, he'll put his arms around you, embrace you if that's what's necessary, but there'll be power in it. But I want to close here with Paul's words because this is the heart that I want to have for you guys. I'm not there, but it's who I want not only for you but for God's people everywhere. In 1 Thessalonians 2, 7 and 8, Paul says this about his love for this church. Just as a nursing mother cares for her children, so we cared for you. Because we loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you, and not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. In other words, I'm I'm giving my life to you. I'm opening up my life to you. And the love that Paul talks about here is that of the tender love that a mother has for her child. 
And then in Philippians chapter one, verse three through five, and then verse eight, he says, I thank my God every time I remember you and in all my prayers for all of you. I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Jesus Christ. Paul, if you read his writings, was always praying for other believers. He's always putting them ahead of his own interest. He longed to be with them. And the more we commit to community, the more we get out of it. Meaning, the more affection we have for our brothers and sisters, the more we forget about our own petty desires. When we put others' needs above our own, and we let the Holy Spirit do this supernatural work in us, that's where life is found. When I care more about your sense of belonging in the church than I do my own, we know community's happening. When we're obsessed with, we want every single person to feel celebrated. As much as we possibly can, we're human, we're going to mess up. We want every single person to be raised up to the full maturity of Christ and serving within their gifting and all of those things. We want every single person who's going through trials to feel loved and respected by the hands and feet of Christ. When we want that for others more than we want it for ourselves, how many people have left the church because they didn't say hi to me? I went through a trial and no one called me for two weeks. Those same people, guess what? They're not calling anybody when they go through trials. They're takers. And we need the Holy Spirit to heal us because our society disciples us to be takers. But we're called to the sacrificial love of Christ. We give and we give and we give some more no matter what we get in return. And if we all have that mentality, guess what happens? That eternal city that we're gonna live in one day we're gonna get a big slice of that cake and we're gonna get a good juicy taste of what it is to live in transformational, culture-changing community. No practical way it's gonna take place. We got an election coming up and I think it's going to be the attack on the evangelical church. I think it's gonna be the biggest one we've seen so far as it relates to unity because it's so easy to think, well, how can a Christian be a Republican or a Democrat or an Independent or whatever and to ask that question and to paint them, demonize them without trying to understand first? There was all kinds of diversity in the New Testament. People that came from different religions, different backgrounds, we seek to understand, we can disagree passionately, but in the end, we love one another and we respect one another. We don't get upset just because someone doesn't have our opinion that's what the culture tells us. If you disagree with me, then you're being aggressive towards me. If you wear a certain hat, it means that you must hate me and all different types of demographics. No, that's not true. Is that objectively true or subjectively true? Yeah, that person may have served more people than any human that's ever walked the face of the earth. Try to understand where they're coming from. Hey, just say, it. brother, when, when, I see a certain, when I see a person wear this or that hat or this or that political slogan... You know, it makes me think these things. Tell me what you think about those things. Right? Unity. Challenge each other? Yes, when you get challenged, we don't, we don't receive that as anger or meanness or aggression, but we look at what's subjectively true, what's objectively true. So, these are some next steps if you want to grow in community. Okay, if you want to turn off YouTube with me, turn off YouTube Turn off the social media, 
Stop zoning out on the phone, myself included. Here's some things we can do, and here's the cool thing. It'll likely be the best, some of the best times you ever had in your life. Regular attend a home group or worship service or Sunday night prayer at 5 p.m. in the floor right above us, okay? Have someone over for dinner. Don't wait for them to invite you. Have them over. Look out for others who don't seem connected and invite them out for coffee. Another step would be, man, I'm feeling a little insecure in a ministry that God's called me to. Who's another person I respect in this church that I could ask to help me? Hey, could I join you in this or that ministry and you kind of show me how you do it? And we got Alex back here who works for Tom Short Ministries and he's on campus all the time and he shared with me all kinds of awesome stories this last time we got together. And we're, or, or the first time we got together this last week, we're getting to know each other. I bet he'd take you out on campus because he's done it before, and he'd show you what it's like. He's a super nice guy, and you're gonna feel like a million bucks afterwards. The Lord's really gonna use it in your life if you take that step. Maybe God's calling you to grow in evangelism. Hook up with Alex. He's the, the handsome redhead here, there with the glasses and the flannel shirt. Um, community happens when we're all pursuing one another, not when we're waiting for others to pursue us. It's okay to be broken in your pursuit of others. It's okay to feel insecure in your pursuit of others. In fact, that's where you're gonna find healing. In that, I gotta stop. I could go on for another hour, my goodness. Um, Lord, we thank you so much for this call you've given us to unity. Lord, it's at times uncomfortable. It at times makes us um, um, feel extremely vulnerable. Lord, there are times where we're hurt. There are times where we'll be misunderstood. But Lord, it's all worth it. It's all worth it because we know the forgiveness and the grace and the life that you've offered us through the cross and the resurrection is not just for us individually, it's for us communally. And you'll heal those hurts and you'll bring unity to that disunity because of the power of your finished work and the indwelling spirit. Lord, we see you move even through the tough times with one another. Lord, and I pray that every single person in this room and everyone who calls Awaken Home would experience what it means to walk through life with others who love you, through the mountains and the valleys, through the conflicts and the laughter. And I pray that the world would come to see and know that you're real and that you love them through our community. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.